positively losing. Did you catch that on the slide there? How many of you here this morning, I want to hear some noise. How many of you feel really positive about losing? It's crickets. How about you at home, right, on online? I mean, you know, what do you think about losing? Do you feel very positive about it? Anybody out there in the courtyard? No. Okay. Most of us hate losing, right? I think it's like, kind of like built into our DNA, at least especially those of us that are maybe rather, um, I don't know, competitive, right? Just a little bit competitive. Uh, I see some elbows right there. Uh, yeah, listen, I remember when I was a kid growing up, my family, we used to like play a lot of games when I, when I was a little kid growing up. I remember throwing fits if I lost. I mean, parcheesy pieces flying through the house. I mean, it was, it was just not a pretty picture if I lost. I don't, and why are you looking at me like you already knew that about me? <laughs> Stop judging. I know some of you, right? Out on the volleyball courts, okay. So, we really, really don't feel very positive about losing unless it's about weight. I think that's about the only thing that, uh, like, you know, if we, we could agree upon. We feel pretty uh, positive usually about losing weight, but everything else, not so much. We shed a lot of tears over loss. And even sometimes the little things, right, the keys that get lost, right? Anybody? Key, key losers? How about, how about phone losers? Have you ever lost a phone? Yes, I have. It is not a pretty picture, right? Or we lose games, we lose our patience, and, and it's just not a lot of fun. We, we don't like that about ourselves. But then, of course, there's a whole category of loss that's about way more serious things, large things, significant things. The loss of a job, the loss of our health, Many have experienced in this last season the loss of a family member or friend. About the loss of one's innocence. And those are things that we tend to just grieve over. And, and I want to be really clear about this, that God never rejoices, never even looks positively at human suffering. In fact, we remember when his friend Lazarus died, Right, Jesus, it says, that was where it said, the, the very famous verse, Jesus wept. And we're told that we are actually to mourn with those who mourn. So when I talk about positively losing, I'm not talking about some like perverted, weird thing where like we throw parties, right, when we're suffering or when others are experiencing loss. That is not what I am talking about. So how can we ever feel positive about loss, about losing. I believe it's because not every form of loss is equal. In fact, in the book of Philippians that we're now studying in this series, the Apostle Paul takes a look at losing with new perspective, and he actually kind of reframes for us what it means to win. And I believe that you're going to see, like I have, that he makes a really clear case that one of the best ways to win sometimes requires us to lose. 
So we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles with you, or we're going to put things up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible here with you. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 today. But to understand what Paul is going to be talking about, and especially right in these first verses, you need a little bit of context about what he's going to be talking about here. So what we're going to read is we're going to read about a group of people who are trying to follow God by their own religious pursuits. Guess what? Paul calls them dogs. And he calls them mutilators of the flesh. I mean, that sounds like some, I don't know, like wrestling title, right? The mutilator of the flesh. Paul calls, calls these people that. You can tell that Paul was rather unhappy with these people who were trying to find righteousness and find their way to God by other means than following after Jesus. Now, they were living in a time like we are right now. It is a time of the new covenant that the New Testament and Jesus talked all, all about. When we read through the New Testament, we, re, we realize that Jesus came to bring a new covenant, and it's one of grace, where by faith we're saved. But, but it's by grace. It's not because you work really hard to get to God. It's that God worked really hard to get to you. And we just have to say thank you, God, for what you have done. So Paul understood that we were in a day of a new covenant, but these people, these, these dogs, they were trying to drag the old covenant into the new covenant. So instead of just relying on Jesus and the gracious gift that Jesus brought by going to the cross for us, rather than that, they were saying, no, you have to follow all the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, including circumcision, right? All the guys, you have to be circumcised if you think that God's going to um, look at you with favor. That's why Paul said, called them the mutilators of the flesh, right? That's why, because I'm talking about circumcision. So anyway, so we, we get to this passage, and you need to know that this group had a name. This group was called the Judaizers. And it's not just here in Philippians. This was a common occurring problem that they were facing in the early church. And so in different ones of Paul's letters, you read about this in Colossians, read a lot about it in Galatians. But right here in Philippians, Paul is going to address these Judaizers who believe that in order to have God's favor, that in addition to believing in the work of Jesus, that you also had to do all the old regulations. Paul wasn't having it, and neither should we, okay? So here we go. Here we dive in. This is beginning in Philippians 3, starting in verse 2. So Paul writes, and he's writing to his friends in uh, the city of Philippi, and he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So we're going to keep going in a second, but I want to, I want to, why does he say that we are the circumcision? 
like people of the new covenant, people who have accepted Jesus and his gracious gift and accept by faith. Why does he say we are the circumcision? It's because God is no longer looking for a cutting of the body. He's looking for a cutting of the heart, that our hearts would be cut. And that's a work that is done by the spirit of the living God when we put our trust in Jesus. So he said, those people aren't practicing the type of circumcision that God even cares about. God is looking for something at the heart level. So he says, we are the circumcision. Now, what we're going to read next, Paul is going to talk about the fact that if anybody was going to have confidence in their own life and in their own flesh, it was Paul himself. So he's going to like rib these guys a little bit right here, picking up in the next verse. Goes on. Paul says this, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. Well, I've got something coming for them because I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, and not just the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Wow, those Judaizers would have been like, that's amazing. Because those traits that Paul just talked about right there were the very things that they felt would be like at the very top of the list. Man, we wish that we could have those things as part of our identity. But they were way mistaken at where Paul was going to go. Now, we're going to keep going in the scripture in just a minute and see what it, what it means to move towards positively losing. But I want to take a moment and kind of break down for you these things that Paul was saying that had been his identity. Before Paul met Jesus and had this transformative confrontation in his own life, Paul was saying all of these things that I just listed, this is what I based my identity on. These were the things that were so important to me in my life before I met Jesus. So let's talk about them. We're just kind of going to go one after another really quickly. But I want to I tell you why these were so important, the things that Paul was talking about. Paul, were you circumcised? Oh, yeah. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am orthodox, bro. I mean, what, what, why did he say that? Why did he say it first? It's kind of like a little awkward, like, oh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, it was very, he said it first because that's exactly what these Judaizers felt was so important. It's what they were getting after. So he said, oh, you think you got that? Okay, yeah, I got that too. In fact, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which meant that he was actually born a Jew. Because others like would convert to Judaism and then they'd have to get circumcised later in life. Paul said, no way. I was born a Jew. The other thing that this did by Paul saying this first is it had to do with his gender. When Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, Paul was establishing right here, right, that I'm a male. And in that culture, that meant a whole lot because in their culture, being a man meant you were like at the top of the gender ladder. By saying, I was circumcised, 
automatically put Paul in like the top 50% of the population when it came to anything to do with power or influence. I'm a dude. Paul was here boasting really about his gender identity. I want you to remember that. If you're taking notes, you might just want to jot that down. He was boasting about his gender identity. Then he goes on. It's like, hey, are you an Israelite? Yep. But I'm not just any Israelite. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why would that have been important? Well, if you remember your like history of the, of the Jews, the Israelites, there was 12 tribes. But over time, and by this time in history, 10 of those tribes had actually become like all blurred. There was really no more distinction of like what really made a tribe or not a tribe. Because there was like intermarriage and there was just a lot of things going on where they lost kind of their purity as a tribe. But there was two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, who throughout the generations had actually maintained like tribal purity. Like, I'm not just a Jew. I'm a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, which means I'm not some watered down kind of Jew, like a lot of you guys, right? 10 out of 12 of you, you guys, you don't really know. You call yourself from one tribe, you don't really know. But I can trace back my generations. So, man, if there was something to be really proud of, this was one of those things. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Here, Paul is boasting about his racial identity. I'm not watered down like some of y'all, right? I'm like a Jew of Jews. I am a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Then he goes on and he has this kind of weird phrase that really doesn't make sense to a lot of us unless we study it a little deeper. He said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, to most of us, we go, okay, Hebrew, isn't that the same thing as kind of like you're an Israelite, you're a Jew? But it's a little different than that. Because that term, saying that I am a Hebrew, referred to something. That in the generations and as people began to move, there was over a million Jews that were no longer even living in Israel. They were like a dispersed people. They were living in different parts of the world. And as, as that went, a lot of them, when they got into their new setting, what did they do? They like lost some of their culture, they lost some of their history, and they lost their language. So when we read the New Testament, most of the New Testament was actually written in Greek by Jews, right? The, the, the common language of the day was Greek, and so a lot of them didn't even remember how to speak in Hebrew. But when Paul says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, He's like putting the screws to him because, again, that was a matter of huge pride. Like, hey, my parents, right? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My parents didn't forget where they came from. And through a lot of hard work, because Paul wasn't born in Israel. He was born in Tarsus. So it would have been really easy for them to have had a different language group, you know, that they were a part of. But his parents didn't forget who they were. They knew their language. And guess what? So do I. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So more than just boasting on his race, what is Paul doing here? He's boasting about his nationality, his national identity. 
Then Paul says this. He goes on and he brags about the group that he was identified with. He said, and I am a Pharisee. Well, who were the Pharisees? Well, listen, the Pharisees were primarily a spiritual group. They were. But they had huge political implications in Israel and beyond. In fact, there were two groups that we could almost say were like the political parties of their day. There was the Pharisees and there was the Sadducees. And the the Pharisees and Sadducees, they actually made up a group called the Sanhedrin that was like the ruling body of the day. And they did not only like weigh in on spiritual and religious matters, they also dealt with civil matters. It was the Sanhedrin that made the life of Jesus very difficult, and they were actually the ones plotting for the death of Jesus. Believe me, this was political and not only spiritual. So Paul is saying here that not only do I, was I identifying with my gender, my race, my nationality, but my political party. I am telling you, I am a Pharisee. Pretty big deal. But then he drops the bomb as you keep going on in this passage. This is what Paul says next. This is in verses seven through nine of Philippians three. He says, but whatever were gains to me. Whatever were gains to me, my gender, my race, my nationality, or even my political party. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider, come on everybody, I now consider, I want to hear from the courtyard, I now consider, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Not just these four things that I mentioned right here, and he kind of put in a couple little extras right there, like I was really zealous, man. I was even persecuting the church. Everything about my life before I met Jesus, I'm now reflecting on that, and I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I mean, what a bombshell of a statement. Because, I mean, all those Judaizers that were like, yes, man, he's a man, right? He is He's an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's even a Pharisee, which was like the strictest sect within all of Israel. Man, this is the man, right? That's what the Judaizers would be saying. And then he goes on and says this. Guess what, guys? All of it, all is lost. 
All of it has been lost since I have come to know Jesus. All of this is now behind me. In fact, all of it I consider what? Garbage. All of those things that I used to base my identity on, that's like who I was. All of that needed to be taken out as the stinking, rotting stuff that it was. It's gone because now my identity is in Christ Jesus. When compared to Jesus, oh, he is infinitely better than all of those things I am positively losing. Because what I gain is of infinite value compared to those things that had no eternal value whatsoever. I am positively losing, is what Paul said. So what I'd like to do in our, in our last minutes together here is I want to take a quick look by getting hyper-practical about what Paul is saying and what it might mean for you and for me. See, Paul had identified these several things in his own life that he is now basically saying were idols in his life. Those areas, none of them bad in and of themselves, right? Gender, race, nationality, political party, none of those things are bad. In fact, God can use those things for his glory. They can be very, very good things when they are under the lordship of Jesus. But whenever we take any of those things or anything else that you can think of that we base our identity on, right? I've met some people who were former gang members. What was their identity based on? Their gang above everything else, right? Above family, above the law, above anything, it was their gang. Can you think of other examples of things that people base their identity off of? Go Dodgers, right? Go Raiders. Come on, you know, it's like we, we, we find that we, like, we identify with some things. They're all fine. Those are not bad. Well, gangs are not fine. Sorry. However, a lot of things that we identify with, including these things that Paul mentioned in his, in his list here, are not bad things. But whenever we take them and put them above Jesus, all hell breaks loose in our lives. And I want you to just think for a moment about the apostle Paul, because his name wasn't always Paul. Jesus gave him the name Paul. His name used to be Saul. And you know what Saul did when he identified with his gender, race, nationality, and political party? You know what he did? He persecuted the church. He was literally going around arresting believers like you and like me, and he was arresting, he was persecuting other human beings. Because when we identify with anything other than Jesus, what ends up happening is we take those things and we believe that we are superior than others. Think about gender, right? 
in, in gender conversations. Are there ever conversations where people feel superior, right, than other genders? Mm-hmm, they do. You can take any of these, and people can begin to feel superior when they idolize that, when they have taken that thing and put it above Jesus. Once we do that, that superiority will then lead to dominance, where I don't just feel superior, I am superior. And because I am superior in this area, now I can look down on and I can pull you down. And I just got to tell you that that spirit is the spirit of idolatry. And that's why Paul is getting after it, saying those things have to go. We have to lose things of identity that don't belong there, and we need to take them and put them back under the lordship of Jesus where they belong. If we don't, these things are idolatrous and will bring our ruin and cause us to bring ruin to others. And that was happening in the life of Saul. But when he met Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed, and I believe because his identity changed, that's why Jesus gave Saul a new name. He went from Saul to Paul because everything about what he identified with in his past life now changed. So let's quickly look at these four things that, that we pointed out earlier and see if there's anything here that might have become an idol in our own life. And maybe God might want to speak to us about what we need to lose so that we would win and gain Christ. So, gender identity. Now listen, we don't have a time right now for this big conversation about sexuality and gender orientation and everything. So right now I'm just using that term gender very generically, right? I'm just using it to kind of distinguish male and female. There will be time for other larger, deeper conversations because that term gender, of course, can mean different things. I'm using it just to differentiate male and female. What happens when a person's gender becomes an idol? It can become the dominant distinction in that person's life. And it can also then be used to dominate other people. Now, historically, a lot of that dominance, it was men dominating women. I mean, you, you just don't have to go back far in our history to know that that was the fact. In fact, in some parts of the world, that is absolutely still happening today right? Gender has become something that has been weaponized. How does that happen? It's when gender becomes an idol, when we identify with that rather than identify with Jesus. And I'm a child of God. I can, can't use my gender as a weapon against someone. But what we do is we come to the Lord and say, God, I take my gender and now as, a, as your child, now I, I look at this as a unique gift that you've given me, whether it's male, whether it's female, I look at this as something that is a gift to be stewarded. Like how do I use my gender to bring life and to foster health 
within my family, within my neighborhood, within my church, within the world, rather, rather than being looked at as something that, to be weaponized, it's something that actually is to be this gift, this beautiful gift of male and female, how God created the world. Because no one gender represents God fully. It takes men and women working together in unity, supporting one another, encouraging one another, standing up for each other, working on each other's behalf, not to tear down, but to build up. That's why God gave us our gender. In Galatians 2.8, Paul wrote this in another one of his letters. He said, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So does this mean God is somehow like doing away with race and with gender? No. It means that in Jesus, there is this place of radical unity that will only be found in Jesus, where we can experience such deep, unity with each other, that I would never want to use my gender as a weapon to harm another person. But like I said, as a child of God, I recognize that this is a gift. My maleness, your femaleness, it's a gift to be used, to be stewarded, to be a blessing, and to foster life in others. Second thing, Paul talks about, he was boasting about his racial identity, right? Has there been any bigger divide in our country in 2020 than over this issue right here? Is it amazing that these things that, that Paul highlighted 2,000 years ago are still the things that we are talking about and that divide us so radically today? This year, because of racial identity. We have watched people be killed and we've watched wars breaking out on our streets over this very issue because of race and of racial identity. Listen, when race becomes an idol, no matter what race comes to mind, no matter what race we're talking about, that race then becomes viewed by themselves as superior and then is used to dominate people from other racial backgrounds and groups. This was not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of God because under the lordship of Jesus, your race and mine all become beautiful reflections of God himself who said that we are made in his image. So Mama Tommy, you reflect God a little better than I do in many ways. Tino, you reflect God, the image of God better than I do in different ways. And then I reflect God differently, but it's together that we represent the very image of God, male and female and the beautiful diversity of race 
in this world that God has created. No one race reflects the fullness of who God is. We need each other so that in unity we may reflect the glory of God to the world around us. May we be made one. And then how about this, this next idea, the idea of national identity that he boasted in? Listen, let me tell you, patriotism is a beautiful thing. Patriotism is the, where there is this love and gratitude for the nation in which God has placed me. I think we should all be patriotic, like celebrating with gratefulness the unique traditions, right, and traits that kind of make us who we are. And most of us in this room right now, we're Americans. And I celebrate the fact that I'm an American. I celebrate it patriotically. But then there's a dark side to that that is called nationalism. And like most other isms, whether it's genderism, colorism, racism, nationalism will almost always pervert being patriotic. It perverts it because it views, again, my nation as superior to other nations. And what it does then is it, it, it's looking at life and it's looking about the boundaries of my country only from a worldly perspective of power. How can I get power and how do I keep power? That's what nationalism does and it doesn't care who that impacts negatively in other nations. Nationalism perverts patriotism. And listen, while nationalism certainly exists within the United States, it is not exclusive to us. In fact, I was talking to Pastor Sergio this week and he was talking about Mexico, the nation of his heritage. And he's like, oh my gosh, man. I mean, Mexicans are so proud of their nationalism. In fact, I remember talking to Pastor Joel, who now is, of course, our missionary in Mexico. And he's talking about, man, I'm not just a Mexican. I am from Michoacan. Oh, wow, this is a whole never, another level. This is like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Man, I'm a Mexican from Michoacan. Let me tell you how important that is. In other words, nationalism is not just a United States issue. It's a global issue. It's faced all around the world. But I want to be really clear when you read the book of Revelation, do you know what is pictured around the throne of Jesus? It says there will be people of every tribe, every language, and every nation. And if you don't like that, that you someday will be spending eternity with people different than you, and from other nations than you, maybe it's an indication that there's like an idol. Like it's just a good thing has gotten perverted. And nationalism is idolatrous because it puts our nation even above Jesus. Well, listen, if, if people from every tribe, language, and people and nation are gonna be around the throne of Jesus, maybe we actually have a responsibility to those people. Maybe, 
And this is just maybe, and I've said this before, maybe the reason God has allowed us in America to be the home for so many different nationalities is because maybe God is entrusting us with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to help others find the truth and life in Jesus before we get to the story in Revelation, before the end of the age, before the end of the Man, if God brings people to our doorstep from other nations, maybe it's something that we need to reframe, lose a spirit of nationalism and say, God, I wanna put your kingdom first. And quickly, this last one that Paul mentioned was, I'm a Pharisee, and really, that's to us, that's most similar to boasting about a political party. I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. You better just get used to it. There's a recent book that has come out by an author named Eugene Cho. He's a pastor, leads, a, leads an organization serving um, uh, around the world. And the new book, I love the name of the new book. It's about how Christians should engage the political world. And his book is called, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. I've been reading it and I've really been enjoying it. And this is something that he writes, and we'll put the quote up on the screen there for you. This is what Eugene Cho writes. He says, no one party is perfect. And no one party monopolizes the kingdom of God. Even if one affiliates with a particular party, may we maintain a posture to collaborate, listen, hold accountable, and engage the political system, all while understanding that the political system is not our ultimate hope or answer. And he goes on to say, when we allow political allegiances to, to do what? To identify us, we distort the Bible to justify our politics and allegiances. Put another way, this is idolatry. So see, this isn't just Pastor Tim using this language. And by the way, I didn't get this language from Eugene, but when I saw that, I said, yeah, this is, this is exactly what we're seeing in the book of Philippians. All of this is a loss compared to Jesus. Hey, is, is our political party bad? Is, is like my, man, is my party? Maybe, maybe there are things in it that are not centered on Christ. We need to look at our politics through the lens of Jesus rather than looking at Jesus through the lens of our politics. Jesus put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not gender, not race, not nation of origin, not political party. Seek first. Well, pastor, are these things, aren't these things important? Yes. But they are going to lead to ruin if we don't put them under Christ. Listen, we, we're coming up very soon to an election, less than a month. Our political engagement is important, but not when we use it to beat people up. Not when we 
toss out everything that scripture tells us and teaches us. But we need to seek first the kingdom and then vote. In fact, you can still register to vote. We put it on our Facebook page. You can go over our Facebook page, put it on Instagram. You can go over there. You can follow the links. You, can, you still have time to register to vote. In fact, um, Hunter Jameson brought some written applications. If you would like to register to vote, we want to help you do that. It's important to engage the political process, but not when we put it over the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus. Positively losing. Before we go to prayer, I just want you to look at one thing, one statement that Jesus said, because I think he puts an exclamation point at the end of this. It was in Matthew 10, 39, where Jesus said this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, when we try desperately on our own to find our identity in anything other than Jesus, we lose our lives. We lose our joy. Guess what? We lose our witness in the gospel. That the world is watching us. Anytime we take any of these things and put them over Jesus, our gender, our race, our nationality, our political party, the world sniffs it out really quick and says, yeah, I don't believe that you're really a follower of Jesus. But when we take these things and put them under the Lordship of Christ, what does Jesus say? If you lose your life for my sake, guess what? You're gonna find it. You will find real life, full life, true life in me. Positively losing so that we can gain something eternally of greater value. Let's pray. Jesus, God, we have to take seriously your words here. What do we need to lose? Anything from our identity that we have taken and put over our identity in you. As children of God, as followers of you, Jesus, as disciples, as your church. Lord, anything that would go above that, Lord, we ask by your spirit, you would begin to identify it in our hearts and lives right now. Maybe there's something that has been spoken today. Maybe, or maybe it was even not spoken, but the Holy Spirit is just revealing it to your heart right now, saying, man, I have been putting my identity in the wrong things. And if that's you, would you just take this moment and say, Jesus, I give it over to you. I want to, like Paul, count that as loss so that I don't lose you. Would you just do that now? Would you just take a moment right now and say, Jesus, I count all these things as loss. I put them all under your lordship. The words of Paul that we read today from Philippians 3, he said this, he said, I consider everything a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if there are any today who have not come to that place where you have taken Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you as my Savior and my Lord. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. And then, God, I place you. I place you in that place of lordship over my life. If that's you, and if there is a longing in your heart today to say, Jesus, I need you, then right now, if you're online, just type the words yes into whatever browser that you're using. If you're on Facebook or on YouTube, just type in yes, because we have online pastors that are there that are just waiting to engage with you and to pray for you right now. And if you're in this place, if you're in this place, I just ask you, Do you need Jesus the way that Paul found that he needed Jesus? Do you need a new identity in him? And if that's you today, just would you just raise your hand and just kind of wave at me and say, I need Jesus. Amen. Both of you, yes. Anyone else that says, I need Jesus. I need my identity rooted in him. Jesus, I pray, God, for these two women. Lord, and I pray for all those online right now who are just surrendering their hearts to you. And God, would you now fill them with your spirit? God, would you encourage them and would you lift them up? Lord, to places that they have never even dreamed were possible, Lord, in their lives. Because your word says, you said, that when we lose all these other things in you, we find life. And so I just declare life Lord, over all those today that are giving their lives and their stories to you. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. So good being with you today. Look forward to continuing this conversation in Philippians with you next week. You're not gonna wanna miss it. It's gonna be really good. Challenging, but good. You are loved.